Well, good morning. Good morning, Redeemer Church. Um, I, I have to echo what the other elders have said already in the prior sermons that um, we miss you guys. I, I miss you guys. I, it's strange standing before you this morning in an empty sanctuary, and it's really created a longing in my heart for us to come back together and meet face to face. But this morning, we're going to have the privilege of opening up God's Word and discussing the topic of the New Covenant Ministry of Reconciliation. And I thought this text would be fitting for this morning, as just as we face uncertain times right now, um, with the virus, with turmoil in the economy, um, with, with many um, not knowing what the future is going to hold, there just seems to be a general sense of anxiety and uncertainty, not only just in our nation, but, but globally. Many are questioning God. Many are anxious. Many have begun to, to question faith and spirituality. Uh, many are considering maybe the reality of death for the first time. And it seems as if people are, are groping in the darkness. Um, and we as believers, we, we as followers of Jesus, we have the unique privilege to take the good news to them. And so it's in times like these that we're reminded that we live in a fallen world, a world full of brokenness. Uh, we see marriages that are broken. We see broken friendships. We see broken bodies affected by viruses and disease. And many have no hope for change, no hope for healing, and yet the gospel says otherwise. Our God, our God is the God of restoration and reconciliation. Just consider with me real quick, Jesus, whenever he saw the crowds in his day, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that still not the case in our day? And so my hope and prayer this morning is that God would truly open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, and that we would be reconciled to him. And may we see and worship Christ for what he has accomplished on our behalf. Have you ever thought what it means to be a minister of reconciliation? Have you had relationships yourself that you desired for them to be reconciled? We're going to be looking at a passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 5 to see how the Spirit transforms His people into ministers of reconciliation. We will see how He has reconciled us first to Himself, and then He has given us the ministry of reconciliation to take that good news to others. And as we do so, may we set our eyes on Jesus, who's coming back soon to redeem all things. So would you pray with me before we start? Father, you are so good to your people. Lord, your promises are true and sure. And Lord, you have done a great work in Christ. Through Christ on the cross, Lord, we have reconciliation to you. Lord, we're a people whose sins have been forgiven. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word this morning Help me to get out of the way. I pray, Lord, that you would protect me from error, Lord, and that you would use your word to encourage the flock. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 
And by way of summary to catch up to this point in the letter, Paul has drawn out a few themes. Um, In chapter 1, he's recalled God being the source of comfort. He introduced the, the theme of the new covenant ministry in 2 Corinthians 3. And then he's ongoingly, he's been addressing an attack on his apostleship. Um, Paul's ministry thus far had been called into question by these so-called false super apostles. These were men that argued that Paul was inferior due to his frequent sufferings. Um, They argued that he was inferior due due to his lack of skill in speaking. The fact that Paul didn't take money as payment for his gospel ministry in Corinth was, was used by these false teachers as evidence that he wasn't the real deal. Um, so to speak. They they may have said something like, surely if Paul was a real messenger from God, then he wouldn't be so weak. He wouldn't be so poor. He wouldn't be so unimpressive. These false teachers, they boasted in their achievements and were perceived by the world as having power and strength. And yet Paul, on the other hand, he was perceived as a lowly man. Honestly, much like Jesus himself, who was despised, and rejected by men. The scriptures say that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. Paul, however, he had learned to say in the midst of his weakness that Jesus's grace was sufficient. And is it not the wisdom of God to use the weak and lowly to exalt his good purposes? He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so if you're feeling weak this morning, you are in good company. God is in the business of shaming the wisdom of the world through humble means. And so as mentioned before, Paul introduces the topic of new covenant ministry in 2 Corinthians 3. And there, by way of introduction, he contrasts the glory of the new covenant with the old. Paul recalls a story from Exodus 34 where Moses received the Ten Commandments, where Moses received the law from God written on stone tablets. Moses, um, in Exodus 34, had been talking with God. He received the law, and then he he brought the stone tablets down to the Israelites And the text says that Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. And behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near to him. And so we see here that after meeting with God, Moses' face was literally shining. His face was radiating the glory and the holiness of God as he received this old covenant Don't don't think this ambient glowing here. Literally, the text says that the Israelites were terrified of Moses. And in response, Moses had to put a veil over his face. You might be thinking, how does this apply to us in our day? And and Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 3.9, and he says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation when the law was given to, to God's people, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The ministry of righteousness, the gospel, the good news that Christ has come and he's coming again is far more glorious. If Moses' face was 
radiating the glory of God upon receiving the stipulations of the old covenant, consider the implications that we, we as New Testament believers, we have the privilege of receiving and sharing the new covenant. We'll unpack this a bit more later, but ask yourself, why is the new covenant more glorious? Jeremiah prophesied, he said, this is the covenant, that speaking of the new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Whereas the old covenant was written on stone tablets and delivered to the Israelites, the new and greater covenant is written on our hearts. Whereas under the old covenant, God's people had hardened hearts of stone and were unable to keep God's laws, the new and greater covenant is accompanied by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who empowers his people to obey God's laws. So the problem was not in the law itself, but as John Bunyan quotes, he says, run, John, run the law commands, but gives us feet gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So this gospel, this sweet news that God has reconciled us to himself, and then we go forth and we proclaim the good news to others, seeking to see others be reconciled to the one, to one another, and to see others reconciled to the one who created them, namely God himself. And so, as we look at 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, we're going to unpack what, it, what the new covenant ministry of reconciliation looks like. So if you have your Bible, read with me, please. We'll start in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5. And the text says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. So the first point we're going to draw from the text this morning is we're going to look at how ministers of reconciliation are motivated by the fear of the Lord and by love. So let's ask, what should motivate our lives as Christians? What should be the driving force behind why we do what we do as followers of Jesus? Paul mentions at least a few motivations in this text. The, The first is the fear of the Lord. Look again at the text in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So so what does it mean to fear the Lord? Putting this passage in context, look back at verse 10, just prior to our passage we read this morning. And we see that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one of us will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there's this reality that one day we all will stand before God. All of our works All of our thoughts, all of our motives, um, all of our deeds will be open before the Lord. Everything will will be laid bare before the God of the universe. And is is that a fearful thought for you? Um, Does does that cause any response in your heart? Are we nonchalant about the reality that one day we will all stand before a holy and righteous God? God. The Lord who sees all things now, and in one day we'll have all our works evaluated. And I say this as a critique of my own heart. We often don't fear the Lord rightly. We have lost the sense of majesty and utter holiness of our God. Consider with me the prophet Isaiah. He was given a vision into the throne room of God. And when, what was his response? He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we must say now as believers, we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been redeemed. We've been bought with the blood of Christ In Christ, we have no reason to fear God's wrath. But the truth is, what we really fear reveals what we really worship. We often fear men more than we fear the Lord. We often are caught up in the affairs of the world rather than seeing our lives through the lens of being on mission for the sake of Christ. So how can you tell if you have a healthy fear of the Lord? David Pallison, he, uh, he's a biblical counselor who actually just went to go be with the Lord a few months ago. And uh, he, he offers several diagnostic questions to help us determine who or what may be driving the motivations of our hearts. And so ask yourself, who do you feel like you have to please? Whose opinion really counts to you? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? In whose eyes are you really living? 
Whose love and approval do you need? So maybe ask care groups this week, ask the Lord to give you insight into these questions to consider and, and, and consider that he, that the Lord is the one who's worthy of adoration. Paul, Paul, Paul rightly understood the fear of the Lord. He knew that all would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as a response, he sought to persuade others. This, this fear of the Lord led Paul to go on in the second half of verse 11. And he says, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. So what is Paul trying to persuade people of? Well, he's, he's seeking to persuade people of the authenticity of his apostleship. Um, we mentioned before how these false teachers had been trying to discredit Paul and his ministry. And we see also that Paul's striving to persuade the lost to come to Christ, to, to believe upon Christ's good work. And so Paul is saying here that my ministry is known to God. And I understand that one day I will stand before him and my works will be exposed. In addition to being known by God, Paul states, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, Corinthians. So remember our earlier discussion about how these false apostles of God's word, these false teachers, they had deceived some of the Corinthians. They were attempting to discredit his ministry. And Paul goes on in verse 12 and 13. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So these false teachers, they had apparently said that Paul was a fanatic or that he was insane. And, and Paul responds, if, if we're crazy, well, it's for God's sake. But if we are in our right mind, it's for your sake, Corinthians. And Paul was giving the Corinthian believers reasons to boast about his ministry. Paul's character is closely tied to his ministry. And he wanted the Corinthians to be able to defend his ministry against these false teachers. So do we see why this is so critical? If, if Paul's ministry was undermined, then there goes the gospel witness and if the Corinthians doubted the authenticity of Paul's calling by Jesus, then the true biblical gospel becomes distorted. And this is true of our church as well. Brothers and sisters, what lives of holiness and godliness ought we to live as we proclaim the gospel? Not having a proper fear of the Lord that manifests itself in godly living tarnishes our witness. When we look more like the world than the bride of Christ, that tarnishes our witness. As God's servants, we are weak, but the power is carried in the gospel message itself. We proclaim Christ crucified, and we are motivated by the fear of the Lord to carry that message forward. And so the second motivation Paul draws out is that he says that he was controlled by the love of Christ Namely, this, and, and Paul, I think Paul refer, was referencing here, namely the love that Christ had for him, not Paul's love for the Lord. Paul was overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus, the risen Lord, loved him. 
Read with me in verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake would died and was raised. This might seem so simple, but we must remind ourselves of this daily. Church, do you realize how much God loves you? Paul's confidence was in the unfathomable love of Christ. Our love for Christ often is weak. Our love for Christ often wavers, but Christ's love for his bride is unchanging. Paul was controlled compelled, or or we could say even constrained by the love of Christ. He concluded this, that Jesus died for all, and therefore all have died. Paul follows a similar line of thinking in Romans 3. He says in Romans 3, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of humanity had been under the curse of sin since Adam, our father, disobeyed God in the garden. And Paul goes on in Romans and says, says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is the lifeblood of the gospel, that the one man, Christ Jesus, died for all. Through Christ, the deathly effects of Adam's sin to all can be reversed by faith in the one who came and died. So what is implied by the term all here? I think a distinction must be made between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. The benefits of Christ's death is sufficient for all, but it's efficient only for those who respond to Christ's work in faith and receive the gift of grace that he's offered through his death. So so we too must cast aside our self-righteousness. We must realize that we can do nothing to save ourselves and we receive the gracious work of Christ in our stead. And Paul concluded from this that that he also had died. He he says in Galatians 2.20 that "I, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so how does this love control us? Well, the answer is that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. We live for him. We consider ourselves dead to sin and yet alive in Christ. And so what motivates us to look past transgressions And forgive others when we've been sinned against. And it's the love of Christ. What motivates families to move with their little children to distant lands for the sake of the gospel? It's the love of Christ. 
what motivates husbands to lay down their lives for their wives? The love of Christ. What motivates wives to respect their husbands? The love of Christ. And what motivates children to obey their parents? It's the love of Christ. Why? Because he died. Christ died for us. God demonstrated his own love for us. And that yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The holy and righteous one whom we ought to fear, he is the one who loves us. And so the next point we'll look at this morning is how the new covenant, how the new covenant allows us to see from a kingdom perspective as we minister to others. Look with me at verse 16. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul notes that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, our perspectives change. We no longer regard others according to the flesh. We no longer see others as the world sees them. And that's a countercultural statement for our day. Our first reaction is often to evaluate people based on external appearances. We are often impressed by wealth. We are, we're impressed by good looks, by power, by social status. We are often so similar, if we're honest with ourselves, to these false teachers that Paul was so opposed to. James, James gives us a real-life example. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, the, in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so Paul is saying in this text that I don't view people in worldly categories anymore. And he lived that out in the book of Acts as we walked through that. Whether Paul was in the presence of slave girls or if he was in the presence of kings, what really mattered to Paul was someone's spiritual condition, whether they were in Christ or not. And so we see from a kingdom perspective when we view the homeless man on the street corner, no longer just as a bum who needs to get his act together, but rather as a fellow image bearer of the one who created him and the one who created us. Whether someone is in Christ or not becomes of most importance. And so what a, what a drastic change the scriptures display in Paul's own life. Just prior to meeting the risen Lord on the Damascus road before Paul was saved, the Bible says that Paul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul hated God. He, he hated Christians. He gave approval to the execution of Christians. And yet now he says, we regard them no longer according to the flesh. And we regard Christ no longer according to the flesh. 
And so we have to ask, what brought about these radical changes in, in perspective for Paul? And we're going to read on in verse 17 that he had been born again as a new creation. Let's look at verse 17 and we'll discuss what the new covenant produces within us. Verse 17 says, Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul was so overwhelmed by his encounter with Christ that he concluded that what was true of him could be true for anybody who believed upon Jesus. Paul had been made a new creature. He had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. His motivations changed. His perspectives changed. His former way of living had passed away. He had been placed in Christ, the text says. And, and dwell on that truth for a moment with me. If you're in Christ, then you have been made a new creation. Christianity is not simply polishing up the rust off of your life and striving to turn over a new leaf. No, no, no. Everything changes. Quoting Thomas Brooks, he says, on, on, in regards to being a new creation, a new creature includes a new light, a new sight, a new understanding. The new creature sees sin to be the greatest evil and Christ and holiness to be the chief good. When a man is a new creature, he has new judgments and opinions. He looks upon God as his only happiness and in Christ as his all in all, and upon the ways of God as ways of pleasantness. The new man has new cares, new requests, new desires. Oh, that our hearts would say the same. In the book of Titus, uh, there's, a there's, a there's a comparison and a contrast to our old life. The text says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were enemies of God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And so that old way of living has passed away the old way of living that marked our lives where we gave ourselves into sin, we gave ourselves into every want and pleasure has ended. It's passed away. We've been placed in Christ. We now live as new creations. We live as people of the new covenant where a radical change has taken place. We live as part of a new community. Ask yourselves, do I live in light of this reality that I've been placed in Christ? Do I see God's people as a new covenant community? Do I desire to strive towards exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in my life in keeping with being a new creation? Verse 18 goes on, and we'll discuss here how the new covenant allows us to be God's ambassadors 
But verse 18 goes on and, and, and gives God the glory through this. And it says, all this, all this is from God. All this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled himself, uh, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. We beg you, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so one thing to notice right away from this section is that God is the hero of the story here. We are compelled by the love of Christ. We are made new creations by the work of God on our behalf. And we see here that it is God through Christ who completes the work of reconciliation. And so as discussed earlier, because of Adam's sin and ours as a result, we, we were enemies of God. God is a just judge who cannot simply shrug off our sin as it never happened. Consider this analogy. Consider there was a man who had committed a, a heinous crime and the evidence was indisputable that he was guilty and he was brought before a judge in court to stand trial. And yet this judge, he looked over the evidence, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and he set the man free. And in fact, we learned that this judge often just lets people go regardless of the crimes committed, regardless of whether they were guilty or not. What would we think of that judge? Well, we would be outraged. We would say that that judge is not just. But God, God is not unjust. Sin must be accounted for. Either you bear the wrath of God against sin forever, or you can throw yourself upon the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Verse 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, this is the best news in the universe. Christ Jesus, the righteous one, who never sinned, became sin for your sake. God the Father imputed or transferred our sin on the righteous one, Jesus, who never sinned. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath, so much so that for anyone who has trusted Jesus, there is no condemnation left. There is no wrath for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And even better, we're not only just forgiven of our sins, we are declared righteous. And so this work of reconciliation is, is not something that we can do. It's, it's something that we receive. One commentator noted on this passage that the Corinthians, they could only appreciate what, what Paul was doing here when they understood it as a part of God's work to reconcile the world. If they wanted to see God's glory, 
they could see it most clearly in Paul's reconciling ministry to the world. And his ministry required self-sacrifice and inevitably resulted in suffering. And so we must view this passage in two lights. The first, and primarily in context, we see that Paul, Paul had been commissioned by God as an apostle with the message of reconciliation. He was the one who proclaimed the message that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It was Paul who was given the privilege of being made an ambassador for the king. The only command to obey in this text so far is, and it was in verse 20, where Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And we have to remember that Paul was writing this letter to believers, to the church. And yet he says, be reconciled to God. And it's as if he was saying, Corinthians, if you disregard my teaching as an apostle, as an ambassador for Christ, then you disregard the words of Christ himself. If you turn your backs on me as an apostle, then you too are turning your back on the Lord. And, and the Lord's desire and Paul's was, there for, was for there to be unity amongst the body, reconciled relationships first with God and secondly with each other. And by way of implication, as, as we imitate Paul, the second view from this passage is that we too have been given the message of reconciliation. We too have been given the ministry. We are given the privilege as followers of Christ of being made ambassadors of the King. We have the honor, the honor to invite people to the coming wedding supper of the Lamb, offering the world the only true hope of reconciliation to God, namely Christ. So we implore, we beg, we plead with others, be reconciled to God. So if, if you're not in Christ today, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not believed upon Christ's reconciling work, then please wait no longer. Paul's words are applicable for you today. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, Looking a little bit further, he says, working together with him then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, uh, in a favorable time I have listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to atone for your own sins. You don't have to, and in fact, you cannot do it. But you must come to the one who offers you forgiveness. You must come to Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're saved by grace through faith, not by cleaning ourselves up. We believe that Christ is good on his word. 
We believe that he keeps his promises. We believe that the Father will forgive our sins because Christ has already paid for them, past, present, and future. And if you're in Christ today, and I hope you are, we implore you to hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast. Be reconciled to God. Flee from sin and pursue earnest love for the church. This holding fast to the Lord and love for the saints is ultimately rooted in a deep understanding of what he's done for you, what he's done for you on your behalf. The Lord has reconciled you. Give thanks that he's accomplished the great work of salvation in your life. Ask yourself, do you see yourself as a minister of reconciliation? The ministry belongs to you, to God's people. We are partners together in ministry. Ephesians 4 describes the role of the leaders of the church in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Pastors and elders, they are a gift to the body, but the work of the ministry belongs to the church. And so as people of the new covenant, we have new motivations. We're compelled by the love of Christ we understand the fear of the Lord and we're empowered by the Spirit to view others through a kingdom perspective. And, and we as a church, we're called to be Christ ambassadors. If you have the Holy Spirit within you and if you have the ability to speak the gospel message, then you are equipped. You are equipped to share that good news with others. So let us hold out that message of reconciliation before a fallen world imploring them to come to Christ. And as we do so, we remember that Jesus has brought the new and better covenant through his death. His final words as he hung on the cross were, it is finished. He has completed the work. He is the means of reconciliation to God. And so may we rejoice in the Lord this morning and may we declare his work to others until he comes again. Amen.